Okay, so I know that I promised you something last week. At the end of the show, I said this episode this week was going to be about real estate. And I know you guys got excited because I was sitting there at the end. Maybe it's been a hard, you've had a hard time struggling to make it through. It's a tough market out there. You're looking for any edge you can get. The sharks are circling. And then somewhat out of nowhere on this weird podcast, you're listening to me. And I said, guess what? These are the new leads. These are the Glengarry leads. So you're getting a little excited. You might've found your edge. And now you're hearing me say that it's going to be pushed a week. And you're thinking you're like uh, Shelly the Machine Levine. You're like Jack Lemon. Like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do now? What's Shelly the Machine going to do now? Well, it's just a, it's a minor pause, guys. You don't have to worry. Our, in, our deep knowledge of the market will come to you in due time. And it's actually going to be really, really good. I've seen into the future. It's going to be great. Just not this week. It's actually coming next week. It's almost done. I'm ahead of schedule on range. We are ahead of schedule on range. For literally the first time ever, I kind of don't want to say anything. I don't want to jinx it. Connor has the real estate episode almost done. Actually, his part's done. My part, I only have a little bit to go. So we're actually ahead of schedule here. And we are going to preempt that episode just, just briefly for something I think is really, really important. It's been a while since we've talked about labor. I don't know. God, have we ever actually talked about labor in concrete terms? Maybe we haven't. So this might actually be our first real labor agitation episode. And I'm really, really excited about it. And we wanted to throw it in ahead of the queue. We wanted to put it in the front because these disputes, you never know how long they're going to last. They could they could be a years-long lockout like Kaiser or like some of the silver mines in North Idaho, or it could be done in a week or two or maybe even tomorrow. For that reason, this interview is also almost completely raw, meaning there might be some extra ums or ands or uh, a little extra dithering, a little extra perseveration. Who knows? So on the one hand, if it's a little too raw for you, we'll be back to normal next week. <laughs> also, though... If you actually like it, if it's fine, then you could just tell me, hey, Luke, maybe you could do more episodes or at least get them out in a more timely manner because you don't need to be such a damn perfectionist. Either one of those reactions is welcome and you can feel free as always to email me at luke at rangemedia.co to give me feedback. It's also a great excuse. You'll hear a voice you might not recognize at the beginning of the episode that is actually producer Kayla, Kayla Brooke, uh, new to the show. You'll hear just a little bit of her voice, her delightful laugh. That's Kayla, everyone. Wanted to welcome her. And why not? This is a pretty good way to do it. The behind the scenes ep. Man, I just feel like I'm off on a jazz odyssey, kind of doing this intro off the cuff a little bit more than I usually do. But <laughs> actually, just give me a second to script something out real quick. Hold on. Okay. Our guest this week is Rebecca Cook. She's a stage and television professional and proud product of our fine city. Graduate of Eastern Washington University, she is also the vice president of IATSE Local 488, the union that represents studio mechanics across all of Washington, Oregon, North Idaho, and all of Montana. IATSE stands for the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, and I think the proper pronunciation and, and intonation is actually pretending you're Regis Philbin playing a certain popular dice game. You really just got to get into that diaphragm and say, Hayatsi, Hayatsi. Like imagine you're trying to scare Kelly Ripa. I'm pretty sure that's how you're supposed to say it. So anyway, Hayatsi represents a lot of different kinds of workers from the crews that bring you certain high profile live sporting events like Monday Night Football or something to set decorators and crew for local theatrical productions in Spokane like when Best of Broadway tours through town. That's actually IATSE 93 specifically. They cover Spokane stagehands. It's not the stars of the show. It's the people behind the scenes who make everything actually run. It's a really, really big tent of labor. But one of the most visible things IATSE does is represent production crews on film and television sets. If you're into the Oscars or the Golden Globes and you're a big enough nerd that you get into the horse race stuff of award season, you probably heard of the Screen Actors Guild Award or the Writers Guild Awards. Those are unions, too, representing writers and actors, obviously. IATSE is another really important leg of the stool propping up labor in the entertainment industry, making sure frontline employees of this multi-billion dollar industry get paid fairly and have reasonable hours and safe working conditions. And who boy, have hours been unreasonable and have working conditions been less than safe? So IATSE has been... <laughs> I'm going to stop doing that. So IATSE has been negotiating for about a year with AMPTP, 
the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, the bosses. But when you think of producers, don't think the people running around set handling logistics. Maybe don't even think of Jerry Bruckheimer or whatever. Think global capital. Think rafts of corporate lawyers representing Amazon, Netflix, Disney, etc. The world bestriding colossuses, colossi of filmed entertainment. The negotiations haven't been going particularly well. And meanwhile, it seems like the rank and file of the union is getting increasingly burned out with a mix of working conditions that were pretty bad to begin with before the pandemic and which have only gotten more onerous, exhausting, and backbreaking with all the extra work needed to keep people safe in the close quarters of film and TV sets during a pandemic. So just a few days ago, the IATSE membership who work within the film and television industry voted like wildly in favor of authorizing a strike if the negotiations keep going the way they're going. Voter turnout on the strike authorization was around 91% of affected members. That's an almost unbelievably high turnout for any vote at all. Those in favor of striking, wait for it, over 98%. When in collective memory can you remember a vote that was that well attended and that unanimous? It's really, really remarkable. This is also the first time this segment of IATSE has ever authorized a strike in its 120-year-plus history. These are people who, by and large, love the work they do. They work hard at it. They do not have a history of crying wolf or being babies about this stuff. This is a really, really unique circumstance that highlights the larger plight of labor across all sectors in our current moment. And apparently the authorization scared the producers a little bit because talks are going a little better than they were before. There's apparently still a lot to agree on, but the producers had been sort of strong-arming and being kind of aloof. And now they're maybe they're not running scared, but they're at least back at the table and earnestly negotiating, according to reports. So I'm sure you're asking yourself two questions, which I'll answer quickly, and then we'll get to the interview. One, oh my God, if they strike, will that delay season 38 of Lucifer? I'll die if they delay season 38 of Lucifer. What about Embryo Sheldon, the spinoff of Young Sheldon that was itself a spinoff of The Big Bang Theory that is just a picture of an ultrasound machine and a voiceover of a baby making jokes about the laws of thermodynamics? You're asking, oh my God, if these things go away, please tell me my stories aren't going away. I need my stories. My answer is ideally no. I, <laughs> You know, if they can come to a conclusion, the point of labor action isn't to stop work. It's to keep working under better conditions. You'll hear Rebecca talk about this. The reason to threaten to strike is to avoid striking, to say, hey, we're serious about this. Things have to get better. We want to keep working. This is our livelihood, but it's also the thing we love. Treat us better and we'll keep working, but don't and we won't. Okay, then two, what the hell does this have to do with Spokane? Well, a surprising amount of television and film happens in our city and the wider region and lots of people who live in our area will travel for shoots elsewhere, whether that's L.A. or Georgia or increasingly New Mexico. The film and television industry is a global multi-billion dollar industry, as we've said, but that means that it touches almost every corner of the nation, if not the world. This stuff matters in concrete terms for a lot of our neighbors. It also matters for laborers across the spectrum, though, so let's broaden our aperture a bit. We're in a period of record low labor participation and record high inequality. That is not a coincidence. When high-profile labor disputes like this happen, it opens the aperture for workers in other sectors to push for better conditions. Maybe consider unionizing the workplace for the first time, like we're seeing happen with Amazon unsuccessfully and actually Starbucks up in, I think, Buffalo, New York. Maybe it's going to successfully happen. The first Starbucks union might be coming to upstate New York. And that's especially important considering that maybe some of these world-changing reforms that were promised by the Biden administration are in serious danger because of like two senators. You know, we've got 3.5 trillion and then another, tr so like four point some trillion dollars of programs that would really help normal working class people are being held up by two people, right? And that's the huge downside of only focusing on electoralism. Regardless of how you feel about Biden, he tried to do a few things that will be meaningful for normal people and he's being blocked by members of his own party. 350 some million people in this country, 100 senators, another 400 and some Congress people, and two people who in pure terms really aren't that powerful or shouldn't be that powerful are able to completely stop the train in its tracks. Good things aren't ever just given. They are fought for. 
And when you juxtapose what's happening in D.C. against what appears to be happening at IATSE, it's clear which battlefield normal people have more power to affect. I'm obviously not saying don't vote. You should obviously vote, especially in Washington state. It's extremely easy. But if you find yourself in a really shitty work situation, you should also organize and fight back there because it's actually probably more likely that you'll win meaningful concessions close to home than in the other Washington. So for all of those reasons, this stuff really, really matters. And we're going to be talking about all of it, including maybe too many jokes about Lucifer season 57 with Rebecca Cook, vice president of IATSE Local 488, coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. It's a lot more intuitive, even if it is still a little unintuitive. So appreciate you hanging with us. Uh, well, you know, like I work in film and I'm an audio engineer and I, this shit should be easier. To write. <laughs> I feel like. Uh, oh, my God. Thank you. Thank you. Because like I feel I feel I've, and I actually have like a little bit of a, it's a podcasting. Fo- it's like the most consumer level of like audio gear you can get for like people who just want to create a podcast, but it's still like an eight channel mixer with like four my, you know, my, and I, there was such a learning curve to this stuff. It's like, how is this not easier? Than- oh, I mean, and I, you know, I have a degree in radio. Like I have been trained in all these things, but it's a whole new world. You know, that yeah. was 20 years ago when I still could splice reel to reel tape. It's just, Oh my God. That's amazing. I can't, I can't keep up. <laughs> Well, that's why people like you need to be paid fairly for the work you do, which is what we're going to talk about today. How's that for a transition? Well done, sir. Well done. How's my mic sound? It sounds good, actually. You sound really good. Um, Oh, okay, great. Yeah. It sounds good on your end too, Kayla? Yeah, it sounds great. Awesome. Rebecca Cook, thank you so much for coming on range today. My pleasure. I'm excited to be here. So I thought we could just jump in and then kind of go wherever the conversation takes us. I've got some questions, but I kind of also, I don't pretend to be an expert here. So I also want to just sort of leave it open to sort of take it wherever you want to. Um, but maybe just to start, I was thinking, what is IATSE and and who do y'all represent uh, within the industry? So IATSE, uh, we'll get formal and then I'll break it down. How's that? That sounds great. We're the International, uh, International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees moving picture technicians, artists, and allied crafts of the U.S., its territories, and Canada. That's our official title. <laughs> so the, the acronym really, kind of leaves some of that out. So that's like... Uh, can you imagine? I tried to write it out as a full acronym once, and um, it's like I just didn't have my hand cramped. The entire alphabet, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, basically, IATSE covers all of the crews who work on... Uh, live events, filmed events, uh, sports events. Um, we even cover, uh, you know, theatrical is where we all started. That's uh, where IATSE began in New York in the theaters oh, wow. and the touring shows. Um, and then, yeah, we've just kind of grown to encompass all the crews. We even cover like some ticket takers and ushers. <laughs> oh, wow. But if it has to do with the live event industry, our fingers are probably in it somewhere. So it probably includes like things, even music happening at the arena or sports happening at the Spokane arena and stuff like that. Those types oh, of yeah. jobs. Yeah. All the crews that set everything up to hang the lights and, gotcha. and move all the equipment in. That's actually what I used to do in college with IATSE local 93. So it basically it's like, if you, if you've seen Def Leppard and there was an amazing pyrotechnics display or the it sound was great, it was probably thanks to an IATSE person hanging the stage and preparing it. I think that's fair to say. Not every event is union, but your 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 big ones like that for sure are. Gotcha. So how did you maybe just tell us a little bit about your background and then how did you get involved in IATSE originally? 
So uh, my degree is actually in theater. Well, I started out in radio and then moved into theater. Um, and when I was in college at Eastern, I had a professor there who was a member of IATC Local 93, which is the stagehands in Spokane. And um, when they would have, you know, big shows come in and they needed extra help beyond their members, um, some of us got on the call list. So we get called in. And I mean, I'll never forget the first show I got to work was Les Rob, which is my favorite musical. <laughs> and we're moving in the set and I got put on the, the set crew. So uh, we, we had to touch up the paint from when the pieces of set got, you know, dinged oh, yeah. along the way. Right. And it's like my very first time working, touching anything Broadway. And, you know, I'm just like excited and overwhelmed. And one of my uh, other friends from college who was a set designer uh, was hauling cable. And here I am. I'm like, hey, look at me. I'm painting a Broadway set before you. (laughs) You know, dumb stuff, but (laughs) but memorable moments for life. So. That's how I got my start. And probably my professor, uh, Don McLaughlin, his love of unions and IATSE is really something that took root in me. So like getting to work a union gig was such a big deal. And, you know, I had such a like awe and respect for the union right from the start. Uh, and everyone I worked with was like really great and really open and teaching us. So I uh, had a really wonderful beginning into unionism right there. I never did join uh, 93. I didn't work enough to become a member. Um, but, uh, you know, n- not all unions are, are that warm and welcoming and open. <laughs> and I right. fully recognize that. Right. But I feel really lucky to have started out with one that was. Well, I think about this a lot. So like, you know, I, I've done a lot of work in the arts. I'm a writer. I've there's a there's an aspect of this work or a huge aspect of this work maybe the the majority of this work that's driven on passion your passion to make you know theater or radio my passion to write and it strikes me that like that also leads to the the, the possibility and the reality of like quite a bit of exploitation to like like, Hey, we'll let you do what you love doing. We're not going to pay you shit for it. So maybe you could talk about, cause like there's this, you know, we'll, we'll get to this. And there's, I think a lot of people think like, look at film and they're like, Oh my God, like Steven Spielberg and Scarlett Johansson, like, you know, the entertainment industry is just full of like stars who are fabulously wealthy, but it takes like thousands of people to make movies happen, make shows happen. Uh, and then hundreds of people to make stage productions happen. So like, Maybe you could talk about the within the creative context specifically, like the importance of having union representation and being able to collectively bargain. I it is absolutely true that uh, anytime you're doing a job, someone thinks is cool. They think you, you know, probably don't need to be paid that much because you're loving it so much, right? <laughs> right. I mean, and I've done plenty of work for free, but uh, you know, when right. you're establishing yourself, is one thing. I also, I still do a lot of stuff for free, but I always look at something now from like, is someone else making money off of my back or is me working for free, keeping someone else from getting paid to do the job? Right. And if the answer is yes to either of those questions, I don't do it. Yeah. If you're doing like a community theater production where everybody's doing it as a volunteer or something, that's one thing. But if you're, yeah, if you're taking food out of somebody else's mouth or if you're, yeah, if, if you're, if somebody else is making money off of your free labor. Yeah, there's definitely layers to it. And uh, and in this industry, I mean, like like labor unions in general, like the three big things we always want are good living wages, uh, safe work conditions, and reasonable hours. And that's like every union across the country. That's uh, the, the pillars of what we stand for. So in this industry in particular, that reasonable hours thing has oh been my God. like the hotly debated topic, you know, for years and years and years and years for longer than I've been a union member. Well, a couple of years Um, ago, I remember it was the editors were talking about how awful their, like just the, the schedule for editing all of these, you know, Netflix shows and stuff was, you know, working 18 hours a day, only having a few hours, not even having enough time to like drive home to sleep uh, and then drive back. And now we're, we're here with IATSE. So it seems like this is a, it's an industry-wide problem. 
Yeah, and the editors are part of IATSE, um, and they've got an amazing president right now who's really, really fought hard to get them up to the standards a lot of us already had, which are still shitty. Yeah, (laughs) wow. uh, But theirs were even worse, especially because, you know, there's the beauty of unionism is you are together as unit collective bargaining. You stand together, you stand up for each other. You know, on every union films that we have a shop steward. So if you've got an issue and you are afraid to talk to someone above your head, you go to the shop steward and they're in a, a protected position. So they're allowed to speak to the producers in ways that you can't yeah, or don't feel that you can. And so editors, you know, they're alone in a room and they get a director, you know, who shows up every so often, you know, and they have to be there and ready for them when they come, you know, but they're, they don't have that same sense of unity that a lot of um, filmmakers get just being on set. Oh yeah. Right. And that's one of the big things about unionism, right? It's like there it's, it's power in numbers. That also means like fighting back with, from like the sort of the isolating impulses of capitalism, where it's just your bo- you versus your boss in certain cases when you're, when you're fight when you're struggling for things, the power is in the numbers of the union. So it makes solitary jobs like, like editing really, really interesting mm-hmm. in that way. It's harder to build solidarity yeah. when you're alone in a room, I guess. And it's been real interesting for me. I started out, you know, as a set costumer and in wardrobe. So I was on set in the thick of it with everybody all the time. And then I moved into accounting because life is weird and you just never know where you're going to end up. Right. Um, no one with a theater degree expects to be an accountant. Uh, but here we are and <laughs> in accounting. I've had to like learn all the contracts with a fine tooth comb and I see how the sausage gets made. Like uh, it all comes across my desk. And I mean, one of the most fascinating things I learned is like, you always have the ability to negotiate above the minimums of any contract. You can always ask for more. And something I discovered just when I got to see when everyone was getting paid, cause I'm right in their paychecks is across the board, anyone who negotiated above the contract rate, it was all men. Really? And then I started studying, you know, women just were not taught to negotiate for ourselves. Yeah. We're taught to be happy with what we have. And so, you know, I went on a whole deep dive on that and have been really working with like within women's committees, within our industry, you know, like we think we have pay equity because the contract says we do. Like we all started the same baseline, but the simple fact is, we don't negotiate for more and the producers aren't going to come to us and say, Hey, look, you should really be asking me yeah. to pay you more money. Yeah. yeah. Well, like that's not their thing. <laughs> so anyway, so, so many things you learn. And then, you know, me having that power or that knowledge made me feel like I had some responsibility <laughs> to start coaching people. And anyway, that's kind of how I ended up in, in, labor leadership because I'm the vice president of IATSE Local 488 now. So yeah, can you explain just real quickly, I want to talk about the leadership and how you grew into that. But then, so, you know, my brother's a steam fitter and he's actually been a shop steward. So I know, I know what you're talking about with this, the shop steward thing. It's it's just, it's cool that it exists and it's a way to sort of like bring problems to trusted sources and then have a protected, like that person be protected when they take that to, to management or to the client or whatever. Um, Mm-hmm. But so, but the, those, their locals don't really overlap geographically. It seems like the IATSE locals do. Is that based on, so what's the, what's the difference between 488 and 93 and like, what's the overlap? So there's a geographic overlap clearly, but it, it must be like different, uh, workers doing different things. Yeah. Let me break it down a little. Um, so there are different types of guilds. Like we are a studio mechanics guild in 488, which means we cover, most of the film crew positions. Okay. Um, and we cover Washington, Oregon, Northern Idaho, and Montana. We just okay. recently found out we had all of Montana. So that's been exciting. Wow. And then Local 93 is very specifically, they're a stagehands local. So that means they okay. handle live events. So those are the different locals. They just cover Spokane. There's, you know, one in Seattle, one in Portland, uh, you know, all, every city. Um, every major city that has live events generally has a different uh, IATSE local for the stagehands. But then there's also um, national and international guilds. Um, so a lot of what you're hearing about right now is the, the LA locals. That's like 
Local 600, which covers the entire camera department in okay. throughout the industry. And then there's Local 700, which covers all of the editors. Gotcha. And Local 800, which covers all the art departments. So that's there is some geographical, you know, like 488 as a studio mechanics, where we cover everyone that's not covered by the LA guilds in our region. Gotcha. Um, but we're also part of the same district as 93. So the Pacific Northwest essentially is all district one or district fun as we like to call ourselves. Well, <laughs> and why wouldn't you, right? Clearly. <laughs> uh, yeah. So basically it's we're re I'm reading deadline for the first time since I was a film writer at the Inlander, you know, all these like LA based trade magazines are covering the strike actions or the, the theoretical strike action, the vote and stuff. We'll, we'll talk more in detail about that, but really they're representing anybody who works on film, regardless of where those films. So like these negotiations that are taking place in LA will affect us in the Northwest once when, when film productions come to our area. Yes, or Yes. Okay. Uh, and I can do a deep dive on it. There's a lot of intricacies to that. Um, but the simple fact is right now there's, Two, two contracts being negotiated, and we have several contracts throughout North America. Yeah. But the two that are being negotiated right now, the basic agreement and the area standards agreement, those are the two that like, you win those, you win it for all the other contracts, gotcha. generally speaking. Okay. There are, I don't know, at least three, product, four productions in 48 jurisdiction right now that would be impacted by the strike. Okay, wow. So let's go into that bargaining a little bit more in a second. But I did want to like, I wanted to talk about what conditions are like in greater detail than we we started to with the editors. Because like, I, you know, again, I've, I'm like union adjacent. I've got family who are in unions and I kind of follow this stuff because it, it, collective action really, really fascinates me. Last week, IATSE, everybody voted on whether or not to authorize a strike. So a strike hasn't happened yet, but basically it's like, do we authorize the people who are actually doing these um, bargaining to to strike if necessary? The voter turnout was 91% of members, which oh. is unheard of. 98% voted to strike or in favor of the strike authorization. Yeah, it was a 90% turnout and uh, yeah, a 98% yes. So that's like over the top. Like, oh, it's you don't get anywhere near that level of unanimity almost in any vote, even among union members who are happy to be in unions of like other things. People get they're afraid to lose what they have, so they don't want to ask for more. Like, 98% is wild to me. So, and when I saw that number almost as much as the, the authorization itself, I was like, there's something must be going on here that's more than any of us have heard about, like on the outside. So, can you just talk about? what it's been like, how it's gotten this bad to the point that people are voting 98% to authorize a strike if necessary? Well, uh, we'll just say this is the first time ever that we've actually asked the entire um, U U.S. studio mechanics locals. So it's just the film locals that voted in this. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the first time we've ever been asked to vote on a strike in 128 years. So there was an excitement here that no one's felt before. Wow. Uh, and also none of us in leadership knew exactly how this was going to work. Yeah. So it's been a little wild. Um, but, you know, with social media, uh, it's just opened so many doors to help us gain support and get messages out there. Also, disinformation, of course, was out there too. But, right. um, uh, I mean... We all, I think the pandemic has taught every worker in America, if not the world, that they're more valuable than they realized. Hmm. And IATSE is most definitely part of that. We got completely shut down. Our industry was completely shut down for several months, uh, if not for you know a year for a lot of us. And in that time, you started to recognize, you know, Hey, sleep is so nice. Hey, I, I like my family. I've missed you. And, uh, you know, I'm tired. <laughs> I'm tired of being beat up for a job I do. I want to have a life outside of it. And so I think that's what really helped to energize this moment. Um, wow, yeah. When we were going, you know, they negotiate the contracts every three years. And when they asked the membership, you know, what do you want us to negotiate? We had, you know, this is like a year ago, we had an overwhelming turnout then. So there was a lot of prediction there that 
that when we asked for the strike at this point, there was also going to be an overwhelming swarm of support, we kind of figured, because these, you know, the four main things we're really fighting for are the things that people overwhelmingly asked for, like, you know, a shorter shooting day, uh, actual weekends. There's a thing they do a lot of places where they don't stop for lunch. Um, wow. And frankly, you can do anything to a crew, but you're going to pay for it. <laughs> right. And okay. so a lot of producers have learned, you know, meal penalties. I'll just blow through lunch and pay the meal penalties. And so you're working, you know, a typical, I shouldn't say that, uh, for me, when I worked on like Z Nation here in Spokane, we, you know, shot five seasons of a television series. And the first season I was a wardrobe supervisor. We called them, you know, they would say they're 12 hour shooting days. But for me, who had to get in there before the actors who are called before the rest of the crew to set their wardrobe and who had to stay late at night to clear all the wardrobe when they left and launder it so it was ready for the next day. You know, a 12 hour shooting day meant a 16 hour day for me. Right. Cause you got a couple so, hours to prep before you actually start shooting. And then you got a <laughs> couple hours to clean up after you stop shooting. Yeah, exactly. And so right now we're fighting for a, a 10 hour work day, you know, but that still means, you know, 12, possibly 14 hours for a lot of crew members. And I just want to underscore that for a second, because again, I think there might be some misunderstanding about what it's like working on uh, you know, working in entertainment or whatever, like what you're asking for a 14 hour day more or less, or a 12 hour day or something like that's, what's being bargained for. So just to be like clear with everybody who might be listening to this about like, is it a bunch of pampered folks who want things to be even better than they already are? And I was like, we're talking about six, 16 hour days back to back to back to back when you're shooting a TV mm -hmm. show. And it seems like TV shows are especially hard because you're doing, you know, you're doing, 12 or 13 or 14 hours of, or sometimes more 20 hours of content, uh, where for a movie you're shooting for an hour and a half, two hours, maybe three hours. If it's like Lord of the Rings or something or a, Mar a Marvel film, it's like just so much more content to shoot and prep for. Yeah. I will say television is, is exponentially more complicated than feature work on so many levels. Um, because usually also when you go into a feature, you have the script, the script, you know, it certainly might evolve during shooting, but you have it. But in TV, you may not get the script until three days before you're supposed to start shooting it. So there goes my weekend because I've got to prep all weekend, you know. Well, well, There's a lot of... Right. You might not, as a costume designer, you might not even know what costumes need designing if you don't have the script for that episode. Funny how that works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now, so. now that we're talking about TV, because I wanted to... Uh, one of the things that was so fascinating to me about this, like going back to the the origins of some of this stuff and and feel free to tell me how much of my layman's understanding of this I got right or wrong. But like a lot of some of this goes back to like the rise of new media, as it was called back then, or and it's still called even if it's not so new anymore, like YouTube <laughs> and streaming services led to the creation of kind of like different wage scales one for like traditional uh, productions like Hollywood films and then others for like these, these streaming things like new what was called new media. So like people didn't exactly know how to monetize Netflix in the very, very beginning, you know, uh, mm -hmm. but now it's a $280 billion company and it still gets classified as new media. Disney has its own stream. So Disney was the oldest of old media, but now they have mm -hmm. a Disney, now they have a streaming service. And so we have, you have a situation where there are multi-billion dollar franchises using multi-billion dollar streaming platforms, but they're, they might not be paying people multi-billion dollar budget rates for the work that you're doing as a costume designer. Do I kind of have that right? Uh, yes, you have a lot of that right. Um, there's, you know, basically it was about 15 years ago when the, the new media contracts were negotiated and they were, you know, it was a, a nobody knew. It was a big question mark whether they're going to be successful. So as he said, yeah, let's, you know, let's give them a discounted rate. You know, their budgets were nothing near what the studio budgets are. And, um, you know, the, the studios, that's what we call you know, a lot of the big feature stuff, yeah. uh, they're the ones with the big, huge budgets. They're, you know, 
you're Disney. But um, anyway, the, the their budgets were nowhere near that when we started. And generally speaking, the way it's supposed to work in our industry is that the bigger the budget you have, the more the crew gets paid. You know, as scales go up, we, we you know there's different tiers. And so when you cross that threshold, but somehow in the new media, it didn't get uh, baked in there in a very equitable way. Gotcha. And so these new media contracts now are, they're still getting all the same labor, all these skilled people for these discounted rates and claiming that they're still new media and they still don't know, you know, oh my goodness, are these going to be successful? Oh my gosh. Just rolling the dice. Yeah, but they're in the trillions now, like Amazon and Netflix. It's ridiculous um, that I just can't believe they're pushing back on this kind of stuff. And why the studios aren't also, you know, fighting it because the studios are still paying these big rates. And we know that theatrical, uh, you know, theatrical uh, theaters throughout the pandemic have lost a ton of money. So right. It's been this, you know, reverse engineering, but now all the studios have bought the streaming platforms or created their own. So, you know, there's right. a lot of opportunity for the studios to start taking advantage of these new media contracts too, if we don't get them fixed. So it makes sense to collapse the, t- like you, there may have been a reason or a rationale, or it might've just been like a uh, good faith on the part of IATSE to create these uh, like a, basically a second a tier or a second standard for, for new media. But if, if all the old media is buying all the new media and the new media that isn't bought by old media is like big enough that it might as well be. And like Amazon's bigger than anything. So like we need to, it's time to collapse these distinctions and go back to paying everybody. A, like if I can watch every Marvel movie and then a bunch of spinoff Marvel content all on Disney plus, like Jeremy Renner and like the people who are doing the, the, the actors who are doing Marvel series are probably being paid the, what close to, or something equivalent to what they were being paid for their blockbuster role. So the stage hand or the, you know, the grips and the costume designers should be paid accordingly as well. That only seems fair. Yeah. And there's, um, there's some more minutia I won't go too deep into, but if you, you know, read up on Scarlett Johansson's uh, court case, you know, the the streaming services for actors have different residuals or no residuals um, oh, through their sort of new media contacts, contracts. And IATSE also doesn't have that. And so that's something. That's fascinating. Um, our residuals work in a whole different way. Like most crew members don't get any residuals on projects, but um, but there are funding sources for the for the for IATSE to get residuals as a as a whole. Gotcha that help fund the benefits and things. So. And so what was the deal there? It was like Black Widow was intended to be like a quote unquote theatrical release, but because of the pandemic, it started out basically streaming. And so, so Scarlett Johansson herself didn't even get the residuals she was owed if it would have been a theatrical release. And so she sued. Is that more or less how it worked? I more or less, I'll, I won't pretend that I'm an expert on that case, but, um, but yeah, basically uh, all of her deal points, as we call them, she, her points became far less valuable. Gotcha. Because th- it wasn't a theatrical release. Gotcha. Okay. And the beauty of her doing that is there's a whole lot of little people who don't have the acclaim and the voice and the power and the money that she does to speak up are going to benefit from that court case, you know, um, because it shined a light on everybody who was getting screwed over in that deal. And kind of along those lines, it looks like SAG-AFTRA, which is the, the Screen Actors Guild, endorsed IATSE's strike authorization and said they were behind you. So that's another example of like you know, the screen actors who are, you know, the the if we're using an environmental analogy, they're like the charismatic megafauna. It's like everybody cares about the polar bears, right? <laughs> like they're the polar bears yeah. in this analogy. Uh, and so like they, they draw attention to like these problems in a way that, you know, individual sort of behind the camera workers couldn't. And so that's, that's gotta be meaningful for you guys to get their support. Yeah. If you check out the hashtag IA stories, um, in any, you know, Instagram, uh, Facebook, Twitter, um, there's a lot of great, a lot of great and horrifying stories there, but, um, a lot of the actors have spoken up and they're sharing, you know, photos and stories of the people they work with. 
And, you know, like I myself am reading them too. I'm like, oh, Catherine Heigl, I didn't think you were that nice of a person, but look at you. You're just great. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. Like the name recognition gets, you know, it gets eyeballs on it and it gets our story out there. So. I haven't thought about, but, yes. I, I haven't thought about Fran Drescher in years, but now that she's the president of the Screen Actors Guild, I'm like, dang, it's the nanny. The nanny's coming oh, we out pro labor. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we'll, we'll make I, the, that I, I was looking at the IA stories on Instagram and it was just harrowing. So I'll, we'll make a, a, a note to link to that. And I encourage anybody who's listening to this right now to like, just spend some time scrolling the IA stories, probably on either Twitter or Instagram or probably Facebook too, mm -hmm. but Instagram is, is where it started. And, um, mm -hmm. it's just wild stories. Kind of like, like one guy short story was just literally like, I haven't seen my family in three weeks. You know, like that's, yeah. that's tough, you know? Yeah. It's, and it's very real. I, uh, especially with COVID, you know, COVID changed everything about how we work, but like, you know, I'm working on a television series here in Spokane and I work from home because I'm an accountant and I'm able to, um, but it's one less person in the potential mix to, you know, bring some COVID in, but we're all, you know, trying to be really responsible on our downtime. Yeah you know, not going to big gatherings, you know, uh, yeah, doing all the things. And we're a fully vaccinated show. That was a requirement for being hired on oh, this wow. one, um, which is great. Like, I was thrilled to hear that. Um, but, you know, when you've got actors who are unmasked on camera, you know, interacting with each other in intimate ways, you have to protect them as much as possible. Um, and these COVID uh restrictions that we're living under are pretty intense, you know, wearing a mask for your 16 hour day when you're lugging heavy lights and, you know, that like, would be so hard. I can't even imagine how much harder that makes that job. It's exponentially. And it was supposed to be, you know, we had the return to work agreement, which all the guilds, you know, SAG-AFTRA, DGA, Teamsters all got together uh, with IATSE and we put it, we put the rules out there and we told them we're only coming back to work with all of this. Um, and it was supposed to be 10 hour days because of all the PPE requirements and yeah, just right. the added layers. But again, I've worked a couple shows in COVID and <laughs> it wasn't 10 hour days. The one I'm on right now genuinely is like, there are producers out there who aren't, you know, who aren't trying to <laughs> screw everyone over. I do want to be clear on that. Like I've worked for some great producers who you know, 10 hour days. When I worked with John Carpenter, that dude only shoots eight hour days and he's amazing. Uh, <laughs> <but> <laughs> I heard, a, I, I heard something that like, possible. like, well, he, because he's like 94 years old, like uh Clint Eastwood shoots like four hour days or something. And everybody loves working yeah. on Clint Eastwood movies. Yeah. Right. That's amazing. Um, uh, so, so back to this. Well, first of all, has it been released what the show is that's filming in Spokane or is that still uh mom? Uh, I think it's out there. Ron Howard voice. It was not out there. She, <laughs> she talked about the show that's currently being filmed in Spokane and then her, she checked with her producer and her producer asked her not to say it. So we're cutting this part out. Pretty sure that information's out there. Okay. If not, I just got fired. <laughs> well, we can feel free to check and uh, we can always edit that part out. Okay. Um, I can't tell you who's in it though. So don't ask. That's me. fine. I won't. I'm going to guess Candace Cameron and just say, I'm just going to assume that's correct. Uh, <laughs> her daughter did a movie here a couple of years ago. Oh really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Her husband is that he was a Spokane chief. Oh, funny. I didn't know that. Um, oh. Yeah. Candace Cameron's husband uh, before they were married was a Spokane chief before he became like a famous hockey person. Yeah. That's, that's just random. And then okay. we did a, a film here and Candace's daughter was the lead. So that's awesome. Um, <laughs> this is specifically sort of IATSE is bargaining with AMPTP, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. So that makes sense because what we're talking about is basically film and television. That's those are the people that fund these things. That's the guild that represents those people. So you're basically sort of like fighting with capital I get you know it's like these are the people mm -hmm. who are funding and profiting off of the films and that's why these are the two groups that are talking is that right yeah yeah and congratulations on remembering the acronym because I can never get it right I wrote I wrote it down I'm re I'm reading off of a screen here I'm I'm, do I'm doing a little <laughs> subterfuge here <It's> 
I was trying to give you all this credit. <laughs> cut, uh, Connor, cut the part where uh, I, I uh, out myself, please. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, yeah, the AMPTP, they are, in theory, you know, all the producers who work with the guilds, you know, have have a stake in that, have a voice there. But really, you know, there are so few independent producers who have any kind of meaningful voice. So, you know, you've got, you know, there are local producers of Spokane, Pacific Northwest, who have no seat at that table, really. They get an email once every three years saying, hey, tell us what you want. Yeah, right. But really, at the table, as far as I understand it, it's lawyers now. It's, you know, like Carol Lamberdini, who's the head of their negotiating team, and it's a bunch of lawyers. It's not, you know, a bunch of producers who are on the floor with their crews, you know, seeing how they live and how they work and, you know, right. caring about them, frankly. Um, but Netflix and Amazon have really just brought a team of lawyers to the table, as I understand it. So it's a oh, wow. very different kind of negotiation than we've had in the past, too. Yeah. Geez. Yeah. So what, what do you think that means? What do you think that means for the overall negotiation or, or how have, I know you're, you're probably like several degrees of Kevin Bacon from, from the people actually in the room, but like, how have you, and I know that I heard that like the union's asking people not to say too much because they want to keep the collective bargaining relatively yeah. um, secret and not let rumors out too much, but does it, does it seem like, or do you have any insight into, or would you, are you even comfortable talking about like, are these new players at the table, like Amazon and Netflix, are they, do they seem amenable to these changes or do you think it's going to be fought? Do you think this is going to be a long, is it going to, are we leading to a strike? Do you think it's going to get resolved beforehand? Do you have any insight into that? Uh, yeah. So actually I got an email earlier today from president Loeb, who's the IATSE president who I've like bold with, you know, like, so maybe you're, you're one degree of Kevin Bacon. Bacon. I was wrong. (laughs) You've bold with him. That's one degree. We don't hang out, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) he handed my, me my diploma when I graduated officer school, but, but uh, no, he, um, you know, actually, actually getting to know him a little bit makes me feel so much better that he's the guy at the table because I think he is the right man for the moment. Um, And frankly, that strike authorization was so resounding and stunning. I know the numbers we were aiming for and we shot well above them. (laughs) Like we were hoping for 70, you know, to be above 75% and to get 98 was, I mean, stunning. So I can say that it seems to me the conversations are really opened back up and the, the producers have come back to the table and are speaking a dialogue now instead of just putting up a wall. Um, so I'm very hopeful that we won't have to strike because nobody wants to go on strike. I mean, let's right. be clear about that. Yeah. That's, and it, and it strikes me that like, yeah, what you, in, insofar as like asking the entire membership, at least the people that work on TV and film to authorize this strike was really, really smart. Cause I mean, I think the way that labor stuff works for people who don't know, it's like you kind of pick and choose when there's a labor issue. It's like, well, if it's really localized, like there's something really specifically wrong with some geographical region of, you know, steam fitters in Western Montana or something, some local, that might just be Mm -hmm. the only thing that strikes. There might be solidarity pickets. There might be other ways that you can, that people go sort of express solidarity and express power. But, mm-hmm. you know, if the problem's really localized, then you, you're not necessarily going to have every single steam fitter in America going on strike. In this case, right. tactically, but it's also a risk, right? Because if there are people in other parts of the world or in, that are doing just fine, people down in, like, there's so many TV shows being made down in Atlanta. I'm just going to use this as a random example. If everybody in Atlanta was super happy with things going on, then doing that, making it a full membership uh, vote might actually hurt you right hurt the chances if it's like if so you have to be really smart about the way you did that so it was a big risk asking everybody to vote and the fact yeah. that it was so resounding what that means tell me if i'm wrong what it seems like it means what uh-huh. it signals to amazon is like not only is this not going to work in la anymore it's not going to work anywhere in america we everybody is so behind this that you have to come back to the table otherwise ain't no tv and film getting shot nowhere for the foreseeable future mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what was brilliant about it. And to be fair, you know, all of us on a local level, 
we talked with our members and tried to like get the temperature of the water and gave that information to international before they called for the strike. We oh, sure. didn't do anything formal. You know, right. no, there was no votes or anything like that that I'm aware of. But, you know, it was shocking just me going out and talking to my crew, you know, like how would, you know, let me give you the facts. What do you think about that? And I didn't talk to a single person who wasn't willing to authorize the strike vote just, you know, based on the information we had three weeks ago. And and that shocked me. It really did. (laughs) Because, you know, this region politically, we're, we're, you know, we're a, a lovely blue dot in a big red sea. Right. So you're never quite sure which way any individual is going to go. Right. Um, but uh, but anyway, you know, that to me spoke volumes that like, oh, we really are like, collectively exhausted and we're ready <laughs> for change. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, that's really, really cool. Uh, yeah, I mean, Georgia is a great example, but also New Mexico right now is on fire with production and net. Netflix is building a huge studio down there. Um, so they're about to become, you know, a studio house. Uh, so we'll see. And it's all we'll breaking bad is. spinoffs. Just kidding. <laughs> they're going to do 17 more seasons of Lucifer. <laughs> <laughs> Given how much that gets promoted on Netflix, there are some people who love Lucifer and there must be a dis- there, there's probably some studio executives who's like, can we do 17 more uh, seasons of Lucifer? <laughs> yeah, I just started something. I don't know. I didn't mean to, but I did love <laughs> Lucifer. So, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so it, it sounds like from your perspective, that would be the best outcome. If like, you know, the, the producers have clearly been flexing their muscle and sort of like mm-hmm. sort of hamstringing you into these agreements that you made a lot that the, the um, workers made a long time ago. And we're clearly mm-hmm. trying to hold your feet to the fire. And then this strike authorization seems to have turned the tables enough that they're back to the, ta- the back to the bargaining table, you know, in a, in a yeah. pretty honest and like earnest way. And, and clearly that yeah. seems from what I hear you saying, like, that's your, your best outcome would be like, Hey, we just get a contract that we like. Nobody goes on strike. We all get a little bit, maybe a little bit more money, but also just more sane working conditions, more sane working hours. Mm -hmm. Um, and everybody continues doing the work they love doing. Exactly. I mean, there's, you know, some cost of living, uh, stuff we're really looking towards because some of the lower end of the wage scale has not kept up with cost of living at all. And, you know, the, the, proper breaks, um, actually having weekends and, and not being a danger to everyone on the road. Cause we're driving home exhausted. Right. Like those things are really reasonable things we're asking for. And it seems like the strike vote really, it shook them enough that they're, uh, you know, it's a negotiation. So their, their counterpoints seem to be coming toward reasonable now. That's good to hear. But ideally, we don't want to strike. I mean, nobody, people have been out of work for so long. The last thing they need right now is to be out of work again by choice when they can't get unemployment. You know, nobody wants to stop working. Yeah. We love our jobs. Yeah. But now's the time and everybody seems willing. That's awesome. So for people outside IATSE who want to support, you know, I've heard people saying, like, and it seems like there's kind of a back and forth, like people saying, you know, cancel your Netflix subscription until we get a contract. Other people saying that's a bad idea. Maybe pre-strike, if you know, before any th- strike happens, are there ways that the rest of us can show support? And then, if a strike does happen, are there different ways that we might be able to show support? Absolutely. Just thank you for asking that because, like, what you're doing here today is huge. Getting our message out there. Uh, you know, public pressure means a lot these days. You know, and uh, I have had multiple friends, like you say, call to cancel their, you know, they say they're going to cancel their Netflix subscription. And I've had to say, whoa, 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 hold, hold off. Wait until we say that's what we're all going to do. And let's do it together and make it matter. Gotcha. Okay. Um, but, but putting the threat out there is lovely, you know, <laughs> okay. letting, letting the, the producers know where you stand. You know, I, you know, you don't work in a film crew, but you care enough about the people who do that you're willing to, you know, not see season 47 of Lucifer, it means something. 
Um, and the producers are hearing that, you know, we'll, we'll see where it all leads. You know, I, I can't predict all the tactics we might try, but the petition that we've had um, uh, that's out there on uh, iatsi.net, if you want to sign the petition um, and just add your name to a very long list of people who stand in solidarity with us, that's great. And frankly, just, you know, it, it is hard to read the IA stories. I'll admit I have not read too many of them because it's a little, uh, I don't know, traumatic <laughs> because <laughs> I've been there, Yeah, you know, like I, there have been too many times the rumble strips have saved my life while driving home and that's real. And, um, wow. not everybody woke up, you know, like yeah. that stuff is so real. Right. So hearing our stories, sharing our stories, and, you know, showing your support right now through social media and petitions is kind of where we're at. If the day comes where we do, you know, I mean, I've certainly heard it said enough times about canceling your Netflix, or your Amazon Prime, you know, subscriptions. If we do it in a solid way or, you know, just do a day where we black out and nobody watches Netflix for two days and show them what it's like, you know, yeah. to not have those numbers any of those solidarity actions we can really, uh, really use if the strike actually happens and it becomes, you know, a long lasting thing, then, you know, of course we'll ask people, please don't cross the picket lines and we'll be trying to find ways to financially support all those folks. So there'll probably be some, you know, asking for donations for strike funds. You know, most of us have, a little war chest <laughs> yeah, right. for a rainy day, but in the entire history of, uh, of just local 488, which is what, 28 years, I think 29, we've only had one strike on one show. Wow. So we're all kind of figuring this out together, but you know, um, there have been pizza companies who said, if you pick it, we're going to be there and we're going to bring your crew pizza every day or you know, awesome. things like that. That's really cool. So that community support, I mean, yeah. It just feels amazing to hear things like that. To, and it gives us the strength to fight, to know that we're not alone. That's really cool to hear. This is actually one of our most hopeful episodes of Range Ever, I think, given how um, <laughs> successful things have been to date. Not saying that anything's set in stone or anything's been really accomplished, but right. I usually ask people what gives them hope because we've just had such a depressing conversation. This has been kind of a hopeful <laughs> conversation. So like maybe we've already done that. I mean, it, like I think for me... And then I'll let you chime in about your feelings on this. Like I was in the the food, union, whatever union covers Safeway when I was in high school. And I don't think I really UFCW, understood what that meant. Probably UFCW. Yeah. But, you know, through my friends that are in unions, my brother, and then the strike wave that happened in the teachers groups, I think in like 20, was that 2017, 2018? Like, yeah, that was so powerful. And, and spending as much time as I do thinking about how like, normal people just fight to live even basic subsistence lives in a lot of our industries like mm -hmm. unionism itself gives me hope especially when stories like this come out where people who have again who have never <laughs> authorized a strike in what what did you say a hundred and some years 128 128 years. years feel the need to finally and they do and you know it it, it Again, no, no final results have been achieved, but like there's this real groundswell of like, yeah, we, we didn't do this frivolously. We didn't do it, you know, lightly, but we've been pretty seriously exploited for a really long time. And now that needs to change. And mm -hmm. there aren't a lot of good stories like this. So the fact that this seems like it's trending toward being one really um, gives me a lot of hope. Okay. Well, and I probably am, I'm a person who leans into hope. So, uh, maybe I've, I've made it to a positive of a spin, but it does feel really hopeful right now. And what's been fascinating to me is, you know, the pandemic was soul crushing for all of us on so many levels, but in the non-union projects, there's a lot of people who are classified as gig workers. Right. So they get 1099s. They didn't have access to unemployment, um, all of that. Well, we were the ones, it was the union voices who, you know, went through our, you know, Washington state labor councils and fought, you know, with the states. Washington's not a hard fight. <laughs> they are right, very right. interested in supporting workers. But, you know, like across, across the board, it was unions who were pushing to classify these folks differently so they could get unemployment and survive the pandemic. 
the applications to join 488, I happen to be the chair of the membership committee, so they all come through me, have been almost triple what they were before the pandemic. Wow. Everybody is looking to be a part of something that can help protect them, you know, right. to be a part of something bigger. And to me, that's huge because, you know, during the previous administration, there was so much, you know, angst and anger and attacks on unionism to have a president who simply talks about unions the way Biden does is just, I mean, it makes me want to cry. I get chills sometimes. And, you know, Biden's not the guy I had hoped to vote for when we all started all this, but man, has <laughs> he stepped up for from a union perspective. Um, that's just been amazing. And so this, there's a whole resurgence of the union movement right now uh, with young folks. Uh, so it, it seemed like everything was trending toward this gig working, you know, Uber and Lyft and, you know, let's all have a gig right. economy, right. Uh, which was really detrimental to um, unions. But, you know, one of the silver linings, I guess, of the pandemic has been that there is just this overwhelming swell of people wanting to stand together and stand united and feel protected and feel safe and earn a living wage and be treated appropriately for what they're worth. Yeah. Um, and I think that's beautiful. So I guess there's where my hope lies at the moment. <laughs> yeah, it's probably a lesson that needs to be learned every couple generations or something. But yeah, it seems like people are understanding that nobody is going to like people outside the working class aren't going to stand up for working class people. So working class people are going to have to stand together and, and the, the stronger and farther that carries. And maybe this hopes, hopefully something like this would have an amplifying effect. So I know the teachers, the teachers strikes did mm -hmm. like, I hope that just like carries that in as far and wide as it can and into other sectors. Cause you're right. I think I'm glad to hear that the people within the entertainment industry are pushing back against gig work, but that's still like an emerging problem. That's only getting worse in other sectors. And I, I really, really hope that uh, mm -hmm. this opens some eyes to, to stuff like that as well. So, yeah, we do have a big platform. So I, I mean, I went over the union talking points beforehand, so Good. there's okay. more I could say that gives me hope, but I can more that I can't say that gives me hope. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and it was, it was, thank you for covering it. I mean, oh, absolutely. And I, I like, I think I want, I always want people to understand because I've had, I mean, obviously being associated with train and working at the Inlander, it's like I've maybe have a little bit more of a sense than most of like how many people work in showbiz in Spokane. And it's not just the productions that happen here, but like Aaron Fink's always flying random places to like do stuff, <laughs> you know? So it's like there are the people, there are the productions that happen here, but then there's also the, the people that are just like live in Spokane and travel to Georgia or New Mexico or down to LA or over to Seattle for specific projects yeah. and production. So that's complicated. It's a big, it's a really big umbrella. I didn't realize that it included like sporting events and stuff too. IOTC is a huge tent. I honestly didn't know we had sports broadcasting for a long time either, but yeah, no, there's a whole guild in Seattle that covers most of the region. Most of the Spokane ones aren't covered. Yeah, right. Um, we have more of the like setup and the teardown, but not the actual video. And so it's like the, the the Friday night high school sports is not covered by IATSE. Shockingly, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's why everyone has parents. No. <laughs> um, well, Rebecca Cook, thanks for giving us a little bit of your time. I'm sure you have to go back to making a TV show. I probably should. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this was a really amazing talk, though. I'm so, so thankful. Oh, my gosh. I am just so thrilled you wanted to talk about it. And uh, I will double check and make sure I didn't speak out of turn on anything. Uh, cool. All right. That sounds great. great. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks. Take care. Nice Bye. to meet you, Kayla. <laughs> Isn't it great getting to a ray of hope without having to go like mining for it? <laughs> Thanks so much to Rebecca Cook for coming on on such short notice. Thanks to Kayla for being my uh, production buddy on this one. It was just me and her. Got it busted out in uh, a relatively timely fashion. Thank you so much for that. And again, if you guys liked this sort of more off-the-cuff version of Range, let me know. We might do them more often. I'll try to kill the inner perfectionist inside of me. Stop letting the perfect be the enemy of good. Uh, Luke at rangemedia.co for feedback. And if you like what we're doing in general here, if you like us landing in your phone each week with a fresh set of crushing problems or occasionally rays of hope like this, 
to solve some of the world's most intractable problems and in, in, in a context that's relevant to the Inland Northwest, you can support us at rangemedia.co slash subscribe. That's about all the energy I've got for the pitch section. So just go to rangemedia.co slash subscribe to check it out if you're interested in that. Sign up for the newsletter if you haven't already and consider becoming a paying member. All right, y'all, we'll be back like we'll be back next week. And this time it definitely will be the Glengarry Leeds. Glengarry Leeds. Have a good week, everyone. Bye. So I actually forgot to hit record on the Zencaster until like 13 minutes ago, but I've been recording okay. on, I've been recording on my side and I think I, and I got everything. I meant to ask about that and I totally forgot. I know. And I just, I noticed it like, yeah, when we were like 40 minutes in, but I've got it all on my side and you sound good through even these crappy earbuds. So I'm sure you're actually going to sound better in decent earbuds. Okay. So I think we're going to be fine. And we were fine, but it doesn't mean that I'm not going to be happy to have the whole gang back together again next week and for the foreseeable future because it takes a village for me to not screw stuff up. (laughs) Signing off again. Bye. Bye.